we're all in control of our own lives. And one question that I like to ask people is, look at what you've been doing in the past week, in the past month, in the past year. Look at those things and think about if you kept doing that for the next three years, three years from now, would you be closer to the person you want to be? Would you be closer to where you want to be in your life? Or would you be further away from it? And after you've thought about that, the challenge then is, what are you going to do about it? Today's guest on the Explore This podcast is Marcus Van Gazel, co-founder and managing partner of boutique Kuala Lumpur corporate law firm Peter Ling and Van Gazel. Marcus has over 15 years of experience in corporate and employment matters and has been individually recommended for five consecutive years in the Legal 500 Asia-Pacific. Marcus is also the author of the book Law for Startups, What You Need to Know When Starting a Business. Outside of work, he is an avid trail runner and runs a Malaysian legal blog called The Malaysian Lawyer. On today's episode, we talk about how to hone your craft and have fun whilst at it. Enjoy! Hi, this is Janice. And I'm Sarah N. And we're your hosts for Explore This, a podcast for the modern-day working professional. Each week, we explore actionable insights on how you can thrive personally and professionally. Hi, Marcus. It's a pleasure to have you here to speak to us today on the topic of how to hone your craft. Welcome to the Explore This podcast, Marcus. Hi, thanks for having me. So to start off, Marcus, when Prestige Malaysia profiled you under the 40 under 40 list back in 2015, you were described as the accidental lawyer that has defied the traditional structure of law firms by striking out on his own and opted to establish his own boutique corporate law firm in 2013 in a bid to gain freedom and flexibility. Now, that's already a mouthful and quite a bit to unpack there. And for our listeners out there who don't know about your career journey, how does the term accidental lawyer resonate with you? Yeah, that was quite a mouthful. And I, I really don't remember what Prestige said. So thanks for reminding me. That was a long time ago now. And I actually don't know why they said accidental lawyer. I think it's probably because of some informal conversations I had with either the journalist or the editor who know my background. So my background is I was like a pure science student all the way through A-levels. Even A-levels, I did biochemistry, maths, and physics. And I only did law because it was a flexible degree, right? That's how a lot of people look at it. Like if you're in Malaysia, you're not doing science, you're not becoming an accountant or a doctor or engineer. Yeah, do law because it's flexible. My interest was really in writing, in potentially becoming a journalist, I knew people in, in the media industry and they told me, don't bother doing a media or journalism degree or definitely not English. So just do law and then with a law degree, you can do anything. And it's when I started reading law that I realized like, oh, this is actually quite fun. So that's become a team in my life, doing things which are a bit fun and coming from a pure science background where it's your answer is either correct or wrong. In law, especially when I went to the UK, it's amazing. You don't have to memorize the case names or let alone the citations. You just have to know the principles. And I just went along with that. And, you know, once I got my degree, people's like, yeah, why, why don't you might as well do your pupillage and ended up becoming a lawyer. And that's why I was called the accidental lawyer, I guess. Maybe it wasn't something that you intentionally set out to do, but there you have it. You have now been practicing law for how many years? 15, it's, right? It's exactly 18 years today. 
Congratulations. We caught you on a great day to record this, explore this podcast then. Yeah, it doesn't feel like 18 years, but yes, it is. Yeah, so for someone who has been practicing law for 18 years, I think you're more than credible to speak to us today about honing your craft. So we're super pumped for that. And just on the topic of honing your craft, I just want to mention that one of the books that you previously introduced to me, which is so good, They Can't Ignore You by Cal Newport, is seriously to date one of my all-time favorite personal development books. And there are so many important themes in there. But one that we would like to talk about today is about honing your craft. So in his book, Cal Newport talks about how following your passion should be updated to become a craftsman to collect rare and valuable skills that you need. Do you agree with this philosophy? And if you do, how has this played out in your own career journey in crafting your niche in corporate and employment law? Yeah, Cal Newport's amazing. And uh, that book is definitely one of his best. His other books are really good as well. But I, I don't remember whether it was Cal who, who said that. He, he obviously says don't look to follow your passion, right? That's not the, the right starting point. But I read somewhere else, I think it might be Cal, where you find passion eventually when you master what you do and you get autonomy and a sense of uh, purpose or contribution and, and eventually the passion comes. I'm just like any other person. I'm not someone who sets out to think, okay, this is my roadmap to an 18-year legal career. Like most people, you come out of uni, you work hard, you do your work, and then in retrospect, you go look back and you go, oh, actually, that's what I was doing. I was building all these skills, collecting all these skills, mastering my craft. Having read that book later on in my career, I then realized, yeah, that's great advice because lots of skills are transferable. And in the world we live in today, the occupations that we're going to be seeing in 10 years' time probably don't exist right now. So it's no longer the kind of workforce where you go and work for one company in one role and rise up the ranks and just work for that one company your whole life. That just doesn't happen anymore. Mm -hmm. And even like in my legal career, I haven't been doing the same practice area for the entire 18 years. I've, I've shifted around a lot. Marcus, you talk about shifting around a lot from one area of law to another. Can you speak to us a little bit about how that even started out and what led you to where you are today, where you are mainly practicing corporate and employment law? What did you actually start out doing? Well, I started out in pupillage in, in a firm which does a rotation system, but I started out in the corporate department and, and never actually rotated to the litigation department. Technically, I was there for one day before I got pulled back, thankfully. <laughs> I was very clear that I didn't want to do litigation. But I've always said that, you know, with a legal career, becoming a lawyer, it's really like, an unlimited number of professions in one. You can speak to 10 lawyers and 10 of them do totally different things. Number one is there's a very clear divide between litigation and corporate. And then even within those broad practice areas like corporate, what does that even mean? One corporate lawyer is so different from another depending on the clients you serve, the industry you serve, and you know the, the niche type of work you do. Corporate, commercial, that's where I started. And, you know, as a young lawyer, you sort of do everything. You do corporate, capital markets, M&A. And later on, I did conveyancing as well, which wasn't very enjoyable. It was something that I did for about a year. And employment really came much later on in my career. Again, with the accidental lawyer team, I guess. I got an employment referral in one of the firms because none of the partners wanted to do it. They asked me to do it. And I started getting more and more referrals from this one person in Hong Kong who now is like one of my BFFs in the profession. 
from there, then when I started my own firm, I decided to pivot away. And I don't actually do much corporate work at all now. I'm almost purely an employment advisory lawyer. Mm. It sounded that how you actually eventually landed in employment is through saying yes to different opportunities and then being open to it. Would you say that that is the recommended strategy to you know, allow yourself to be open to different opportunities or should you be very laser focused from the get-go and already identify one particular area and go full force on it? What's your take on that? And is there some sort of tension between the two? Yeah, there's definitely a tension between the two. And that's one of the big questions that young lawyers always ask. Should right. I specialize, you know, yeah. learn everything? Because you, you don't really know what practicing that area of law is like from your studies. It's almost totally different. I did employment law in uni for fun, and it's totally irrelevant to my practice now. Or even I actually didn't study company law as a module, and I was a corporate lawyer for 10 years. So I think it really depends on the opportunities you get. But what's important is with everything that you do, uh, try and master it. I think one of the biggest mistakes anyone in any profession can make these days is to just do your work that's assigned to you. And the reason I say that's a mistake is we get so caught up in just taking off tasks and being busy and working late. But at the end of the day, if we're not intentional about learning from the mistakes we make or picking up tips from different people, different working styles, if we're not intentional about it, you'll find that three years have gone, five years have gone, and then you found that, oh, I've worked for five years, but I don't really know how to do anything. You know, you sort of know how to work off precedence, but you've missed the opportunity to learn fresh skills and fresh viewpoints and especially the intangible things about lawyering, which I think uni definitely does, doesn't teach you. And you only learn when you're working if you're intentional about it, things like client service or how to price your services, all these business development and marketing things, which you really learn from, uh, number one, making a lot of mistakes, and number two, just observing people around you and the different styles of doing it, and then crafting your own style of doing things. Marcus, I love how you talk about being very intentional. And I think whenever we talk about developing our skills and our craft, one of the frameworks that we look at is either the T or the I framework, where you talk about breadth or depth. Because you mentioned that you started out, you know, saying yes to things that you may not even were familiar with, but then you kind of took it along and then eventually developing that niche within the corporates and employment sphere specifically. So how intentional were you in doing that? And can you talk us through some of that thought process? Well, you know, honestly, I think in the first probably three years of uh, my working life, I won't pretend that I was very intentional <laughs> about it at all. And like I said, in retrospect, I look back and see that I was given opportunities. And I was very lucky to have had mentors or people who, the seniors who were just very good to me. And at the time, for example, we'd go out in, in a group, maybe like eight to 10 juniors doing a due diligence exercise. And then we'd come back and it almost always was either me or me and another person who got asked to stay back. And, oh, you stay back and you do the report, compile the documents. And at the time, I was like, why me? You know, why, why am I being picked on to do this extra work when everyone else gets to go home? But then after three years, you know, the, I remember there was a, a clear uh, turning point where I realized this, where a peer of mine walked into my room and asked, uh, do you have a template for a certain kind of agreement? And I'm like, I've done loads of those agreements. What do you mean? You know, you haven't done one? And he hadn't done one. 
And he's actually a bit more senior than me, a bit, probably about seven months more senior than me in the firm. And it was then that I sort of sat down and realized like, oh, okay. So all these seniors who at the time I thought were bullying me and being unfair, just piling on work on me, were actually doing me a great favor, exposing me to these things. And it was really at that point, I think it was in my third year of practice where I sat down and thought, okay, now that I've again accidentally, you know, picked up all these skills and experiences, I want to be more intentional about it moving forward to see more opportunities. And it was then really that when I was dealing with different lawyers, lawyers from other firms as well, and dealing with clients, I was more intentional about, you know, looking through the corrections they made, looking through the comments they made, and looking for the reasons behind it, and then learning and intentionally improving myself moving forward. And I think it, it was that kind of realization that allowed me to then move firms and become a partner in a smaller firm and then set up my own firm because I became a bit more independent with my skills and with uh, my client management process and my thought process and even like drafting documents. You're just more intentional about it. It's super easy to when you have to draft a document as a young lawyer to just get a template and then change the details and send it out. But I, I made sure I taught through uh, the provisions and that, that really, I think from that point on, built a solid foundation for me. Hmm. It's great that how you're able to now look back in hindsight and two themes that I caught on to were like, first of all, being intentional in what you do, not just doing the work, but to go above and beyond in recognizing what are the skill sets that you want to develop. And the second thing that I've noticed as well is about doing the work, right? Even though you were asked to stay back late, being so-called picked on, but you, you did the work, you hustled through. And in the end, years later, you managed to become the go-to person for the template. So kind of touching upon on that, right? While two of us are no longer in the legal industry, you are though, we are aware that the legal practice is notorious for being an industry that many people enter, but very few would stay on. So we want to ask you, what have been some of the unique challenges that you faced in your journey of honing your craft? And, you know, talk to us. Did you feel like giving up at any point, you know, those late nights that you were asked to stay back in? Were there any point that you were like, I'm so done with this. I, I'm out. Tell us more. First of all, I think as I matured in the profession, I became very thick-skinned. I'm someone who's, you know, very quite immune to criticism and I quite enjoy it, really. But in the early years, one of the big challenges was the legal industry is very hierarchical, right? So there's very much a sense of you have to see your time and rise up through the ranks. Juniors do these things, mid-level people do these things, partners do these things. So one of the things which really put me under a lot of pressure in my early years was I enjoyed writing. So even when I was a pupil, I was writing a column in the age. It wasn't a legal column. It was like this you know, frivolous social commentary column like 500 words every fortnight or something, just commenting about various things, trying to be tongue-in-cheek. But as I became an associate, I then started writing a legal column uh, prompted by the editors at The Edge. And at the time, it was the only legal column in The Edge. And there was a lot of pressure from some of the partners to not write it because they're saying, why is a first, second year lawyer writing a legal column in The Edge when we don't write in The Edge? And yeah, so th there was definitely that pressure on me. And that's something that it affected me a little bit because it's something I, I really enjoyed doing and I didn't want to stop doing. And again, I was fortunate that a couple of powerful senior partners in the firm, thankfully, came and spoke to me individually. And it was only at this point that I knew it had become an issue 
because they knocked on my door within a week individually and said, you know, oh, you know, this column, just don't worry, just keep doing it. And it was then that I learned that it was actually being discussed at partnership level that maybe I should stop or slow down or hand the column over to a partner, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. That was a challenge for me in my early years. And I only got through it because, number one, because of the support of, of the senior partners who just told me to just keep my head down and, and do it. And that also prompted me to then make sure that whatever I wrote was top-notch, was excellent, was free of errors because I didn't want any opportunity to be criticized for what was being published. So that, that was one major challenge early on in my career. Later in my career, I would say at the time when I was making a shift from corporate to employment, that was a huge shift. And if you know the employment and industrial relations landscape in Malaysia, if you're an employment lawyer, you are almost always, I would say always, a litigation lawyer. So employment law is people who go to the industrial court. You probably have a handful of litigation employment specialists in Malaysia, and the rest of them are really general litigators who happen to do employment cases that come their way. You definitely don't have a purely employment advisory lawyer from a corporate background. So that's something which, you know, within the industry, definitely I felt pressure about that. And I've there's all sorts of back chat about, you know, who is this guy? I've never seen him in court. What are his reported cases? It's such a, a narrow-minded profession sometimes. One of the things uh, you said about filtering through what you have to write or making sure that it's top-notch. I'm curious to know, did you ever feel, because you were talking about pressure, did you ever feel that there were certain things that you had to filter through or you had to kind of just be extra careful with the words that you use because it might or might not fall within the favor of the firm that you were working for? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it, just throughout the time, I, I maintained a column for many years, actually. And there, there are some topics like, criticizing the competition commission for inaction, for example. Mm. These are things you have to be really careful about because maybe the firm might want to be engaged by the competition commission for work or just commenting on corporate deals. But it was really interesting because at the time I was writing as a junior, I wasn't writing about very specific corporate or capital markets topics, which were my practice area. I was writing about various topics. I, I suppose I still had my student hat on where I thought, yeah, if I do a bit of research and read some cases, I can write about it. And it was really interesting because I would write about things like land law cases. I wrote about one of the landmark land law cases, Adorna Properties at the time, and wrote a commentary about it. And then in the next couple of months, I would get invitations to speak <laughs> at land law panels. And it's just ridiculous. I, I get these invitations just because they read this column in The Edge and assumed I was some sort of expert. And they would invite me to be part of a three-man panel and the other people are like professors and stuff like that. And it, it happened with almost every topic I wrote, which then, you know, really opened my eyes to the possibilities of sort of business development through writing, right? At the time, the only legal column I can think of in Malaysia was by the late Bark Singh in the Star. And the legal writing would be super legalistic, citing cases and very dry Whereas mine was a bit different. Mine was a bit more commercial. Mm. And every time I wrote, I would say almost every time I wrote, I would get invitations to speak at events and seminars, which I always turned down because I was always freaked out by the fact that I'm a first, second year lawyer. 
in this time today, it seems that so many lawyers and non-lawyers also have their own blog, they have their own you know, YouTube channels where they talk about case updates for management consultants. Maybe they'll produce YouTube videos on how to get into a management consulting firm. So in this time and age today of technology and social media, would you say that honing your craft also needs to come hand in hand with thinking about your personal branding and about putting yourself out there online, like how you used to do uh, many years ago, writing your blogs, and then now as well doing the Malaysian lawyer with Ishii? Yeah, I mean, I don't know about other professions, but the legal practice is a service industry after all. Mm -hmm. And there are two broad, important areas that you need to really master. There's no point mastering knowledge of the law, of Mm -hmm. cases, of just being 100% straight A student, but not being able to master the second element, which is getting clients, especially if you're going to be starting your own practice. If you're in a big firm, maybe there's a bit less pressure because there's always a flow of clients coming down from the senior partners or the rainmakers. But if you want to be independent and an excellent uh, service provider, an excellent all-round lawyer, definitely you have to find a way to get clients. And there are many ways to do it, but I definitely think that for young lawyers, marketing and branding is important and it's very easy to do in Malaysia. The reason why I say it's very easy to do is not too many people are doing it well. Now, yeah, definitely in the past two years, lots and lots more people are doing it. But, you know, when I was starting practice, no one was doing it. And even when Elishi and I started the Malaysian Insider all those years ago, they how many Malaysian law blocks were there? There was Lawyer Buruk, but there was more of like a human rights blog in terms of, you know, company law, employment law. There wasn't a single one. I remember, Marcus, as a young lawyer in practice, we were so consumed as lawyers and just kind of being really tunnel vision within this specific industry that we never explored things like personal branding, which we now talk so often about. I remember not even having a LinkedIn profile until I went to business school because which lawyer creates a LinkedIn profile for themselves? But now really happy to see that this time and age, we see so many of our lawyer colleagues on LinkedIn and they're also making a name in themselves and carving out their niche with regards to either creating videos that are relevant to the work that they do or writing blogs and articles the way you do as well. And I think this is a great segue as we talk about the idea of building career capital. And so irrespective of whichever industry, in this specific case, it was the legal industry, but regardless of whatever industry we might be in, right, career capital is something that I think most of us resonate with. And it's defined by Cal Newport in his book as the skills you have that are both rare and valuable, and that can be used as leverage in defining your career. So you speak very often about this, but can you share with our listeners about what are some ways that you personally have leveraged your skills and craft, and it has paid off positively in your career? I've spoken enough about writing. That's something that I've done since I first entered practice and I've done throughout my career. So that's something which I was interested in and something which I've gotten better at over the years, especially getting better at targeting content for clients, knowing what clients want to read. Another area where my skills have helped me is the fact that I didn't start off in litigation. I started off in corporate commercial work, and that's always been my background. And that, in a way, I can see a huge advantage, especially when I speak with most of my clients now are outside of Malaysia, actually, international law firms, international 
HR, C-suites. It's very rare that I deal with someone who's actually in Malaysia. I see the the real value that they see in, you know, if you if you read Chambers or Legal 500 and read the client testimonials, it's very easy to see what clients want because all their testimonials about the lawyers are about, oh, this person is really commercial, really practical, really relevant advice, timely advice. So this, these things about commercial, practical, relevant, what they mean by that, if you read behind the words, is that they hate legalese, right? So they hate the typical litigation-trained advice where if you ask them for advice, then the lawyer will come back like, okay, this is the law, these are the issues, this is the law applied to the facts, and this is the conclusion, and here are five caveats from, with the opinion as well. Because, because I wasn't from that background, when I was practicing corporate capital markets, m and one thing that I really noticed, which was really odd to me in the beginning, was we hardly ever looked at the law. As a capital markets lawyer, you never cite cases. You don't even know the cases. Mm-hmm. At most, you look at the Capital Markets and Services Act or the Takeover Code at the time. But when you're advising clients, they don't really want you to cite sections of the Companies Act in the documentation that you provide for them. And the contracts that you draft, it's very rare that you see... Uh, X cited. You definitely never see cases cited. Clients are just not interested in this. So that kind of approach to delivering legal knowledge, to delivering advice, has definitely been something which has helped to set me apart. I mentioned earlier that most employment lawyers are litigation lawyers, and you can see that uh, from the advice that they provide. And ever since I started focusing purely on employment, I would say in about 2015, I've definitely seen a lot of clients come to me who said, yeah, we've been using X legal firm for the past 10 years or five years, but the advice just isn't very good, isn't very useful. We now want to come to you because you've been recommended by word of mouth. And when I dig a bit deeper, it's it's always the thing that they really dislike is the legalese and the non-committal, super case-laden advice with loads of disclaimers. They just want, can I do it or not? If I can't do it, what's the alternative? They really don't want, you know, a history of the law. Let's talk a little bit about doing the work while having fun at it. So, you know, Marcus, you're someone who is, I would say, pretty known to be someone who marches to the beat of your own drum, right? So one thing that you always mention is also about, you know, doing the work, but have fun while at it. Would it be fair to say that fun is one of the guiding principles in your career and also in your personal life? And would you say having fun and doing the work, would that be something that is mutually exclusive? Yeah, there's there's a great quote I read recently, I think, recent years anyway, about, you know, this this pro surfer was being, was commentating at a surfing event and and he was asked, who's the best surfer out there? And he said, the best surfer is the one who's having the most fun. And uh, I thought that was really cool. And something that doesn't just apply to to surfing, but, you know, to life. Forget legal practice, just life in general. Mm. What's the point? If you're not having fun, if you're not having fun, then stop doing it, do something else. But in terms of work and fun, I don't think it's mutually exclusive. You know, we talked right at the top of this about Cal Newport talking about mastery and passion. And it may not be fun when you're starting out to some people, Mm. but when you get good at it, you enjoy it because you can achieve that kind of flow state and it becomes fun. 
I say to some people because I quite enjoy starting starting new things and learning new things. There's a great book I read recently, Beginners by Tom Vanderbilt. Excellent. Uh, if you Google it, you can read a, a Guardian excerpt from the book. But it basically talks about learning learning new things and how being able to humble yourself and adopt the mindset of a beginner broadens your world. Whenever you learn a new craft or t- pick up a new hobby, you totally open your eyes. Like if you learn how to sketch, for example, you know, a lot of people in lockdown took up YouTube sketching and they learn how to sketch. I think you find that you see the world differently. Just whatever skills that you learn and pick up, you definitely take on a different mindset and worldview. And I, I think that's one of the important things as well, mindset that a lot of people fall short on. A lot of the reason why people I feel are, are unhappy or unmotivated or not feeling any passion is because they don't like what they do. Number two is that there's the fear of changing, right? They feel like they're stuck. There's a lot of this mentality where they blame their environment, their upbringing, maybe their social status or financial status, family status to say, yeah, I'm unable to do it. But I believe that a lot of the time, the real reason why they can't do it is because just they're prisoners of their own mindset. You know, it's easy to find excuses. I, I think that it really boils down to fear. And the fear that most people have is the ultimate fear, I think, is the fear of you know criticism, right? Social rejection. I think that really weighs down hard on people, especially in the social media age where it's easy to compare. Uh, another fantastic I wouldn't say it's a quote, it's, it's, a, it's a whole passage, really, The Man in the Arena by Theodore Roosevelt. I'm sure you guys are familiar with that. Yep. It's amazing, right? It just is a really, really powerful expression of how if you want to achieve something, you have to get your hands dirty, you got to get your face, face in the dirt. And most of all, you're going to get criticized, especially from people in the cheap seats, right? It's almost always people who aren't doing well who will criticize you. You very rarely see successful people going around backbiting and gossiping and criticizing people who are trying to change their life or trying to do something in this world. And I think it's a difficult thing to overcome, this fear. But if you adopt that mindset of putting the blinkers on, doing the hard work, which is something that I think we've all mentioned several times in in this conversation, we all see the value of hard work. So do we all appreciate the value of hard work? But even though we do, it's difficult to maintain that mindset. The normal pressures of this world, of criticism, of comparison, we're all human after all. Mm. And one quote, which I really love by Joseph Campbell, the cave that you fear to enter holds the treasure that you seek. And it's super, super powerful to to unpack and just think about that. It's almost always in, in your lives as you look back at the things that you're proud of, the things that you've achieved, there was always that fear factor to overcome, right? And that's life. We were talking about beginners earlier. If there are never any beginners, there won't be any experts, right? All experts start off as beginners. And if we never had to work for it or overcome fear or hurdles or challenges to get to it, I don't think we would appreciate it as much. We wouldn't celebrate it as much. It would just be, yeah, just something that I did. Yeah, completely. And, you know, touching on what you just said, the there's this cliche phrase. I say cliche because it's plastered everywhere and we hear all the time, but it's something that, you know, when you think about cliche. it, it's so, yeah, we love a good cliche, which is the line by Richard Branson, I think, which is, do it afraid, but do it anyway. Wow. 
Yeah, I mean, sometimes it can be really daunting, especially things that require you to start again, to be a beginner again, to lean into the discomfort. Those are the things that really are scary. But once you get over that hump, that learning curve, as steep as it is, you reap the rewards at the end of it. And I yeah. think it's also about putting yourself out there, right? The quote you mentioned by Theodore Roosevelt, I think it's really empowering because it just shows that you are one of those few people, the minority who are willing to let yourself get bitten, let yourself get criticized. But the thing that you have above everyone else that they might not have is the fact that you have even taken that step to put yourself out there. And like what you said, Marcus, I, I like to think that listeners of the Explore This podcast are individuals like ourselves, right, who are wanting to put ourselves out there by taking the extra step, going the extra mile and taking the initiative because we're always in this learner's mindset of wanting to um, hone our craft at the same time like you, right, learn how to have fun along the way. So I think it, it also speaks about what motivates us and what sustains our personal drive. So for yourself, Marcus, having spent almost what close to two decades now, right? 18 years, like you said today, in the legal sphere and objectively having a certain level of mastery and expertise. So what would you say is your inverted comma ultimate goal? And have you accomplished it? I don't have an ultimate goal. And I don't think having an ultimate goal is the way to live life, you know? And last year, you know, I did one of the cliche lockdown activities, which is getting this complicated jigsaw. And it was really fun doing it. It was a really nice jigsaw. But then I finished it. And I was like, oh, what am I going to do with this now? What do you do with the jigsaw when you're done, right? Yeah, so I, I got it framed up and all that. But, you know, just I only did that because I had a jigsaw, which I thought it's such a shame to put it back in a box. But yeah, I don't think life is like a jigsaw. I don't think you ever achieve the ultimate goal. I'm someone who's always juggling multiple goals at one time and then I'll read something and get another goal and be inspired to do something else for fun. And I think, yeah, I'm definitely like in my career, I never charted the path and I think it's just important to focus and enjoy the journey and focus on all those things we discussed earlier about mastery and adopting the right mindset. And I believe that when you do things like that, you really live a life that's passionate and ultimately you will feel that it's a purposeful life. Failure is part of that. Overcoming fear is part of that. I'll throw in another couple of cliches, which my daughters are asleep now, but if I pull them out here, they would be able to, to cite these cliches to you because I say it to them all the time, which is it's not failure if you learn from it, right? It's only a failure if you don't learn from it. And another one is, I, I haven't failed 10,000 times. I've just learned 10,000 ways not to do it. And these are things which they can rattle it off to you because it's something which I really believe in and I try to, to instill in them. And like right now, I can name you some goals that I have, but I don't have an ultimate goal. In that case, what continues to motivate you then? I enjoy what I do. So if you're talking about work, which I don't divide work and life, by the way. I just think it all blends into one. But if you're talking about work, yeah, I completely enjoy the work that I do right now. I enjoy dealing with the clients that I deal with, whether it's foreign lawyers or foreign clients. I really enjoy the problems that they throw at me and the working style that we have, the, the way we work. And obviously, I have that luxury of being a business owner so I can turn down the clients who I don't want to work with. And there are many of them out there. So that's something which I, I don't feel I need to motivate myself to get to work. The lifestyle that I have as well, I work remotely. 
I was working remotely before working remotely became mandatory. Such a <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, super flexible lifestyle. So I can do what I want. And especially important to me, which I'm really happy I've managed to achieve this is at the midpoint in my career, one of the things which I always tell young lawyers, and I'm sure I've said this to Janice as well, is when you're in an organization, look at people who are five, 10 years, you're senior in the organization and think, do I want to be that in five or 10 years time? And then that will be instructive on whether that organization is for you or that industry is for you. And I remember looking at my seniors and no disrespect to them. Maybe they enjoy, you know, different people make different choices in their lives, but they didn't see their kids. They didn't see their families. They work late. They'd be happy if they got home in time to have a half an hour chat with their kids before either they put them to bed or the maid put them to bed. And that's totally not the lifestyle that I wanted. The work aside, I've got a lifestyle where I see my kids every day, drop them off at school, pick them up and get to hear the stories when we're driving back home and yeah, just spend a lot of time with them while still doing good legal work, while still making a decent amount of money and enjoying the work that I do and being able to indulge in my hobbies as well, going for two, three-hour hikes and runs and things like that is on a weekday. It's a huge luxury and yeah, I'm, I'm having fun. It's definitely, you know, amazing that you have the woods basically kind of at your background. Yeah. Coming towards the end of our episode, one question that we always like to ask our guests is, what's the one thing you recently explored that surprised you? Wow. I'm going to go like 2020, recent enough. Actually, I, I watched this uh, documentary on Netflix, one of the pr- early lockdown documentaries here that was really popular in Melbourne called Speedcubers. It's about people speed solving of Rubik's Cubes and they're ridiculous. And a Rubik's Cube was something to me, which was always like, it's like a bit of magic, right? <laughs> like how do you solve a Rubik's Cube? And whenever I've tried to do it, I've always picked it up and tried to get one line and then get another line or get a face and all that. But then I, I dug a bit into it and I realized that there's actually a formula to it. And it's a pretty simple formula. It's just a matter of like memorizing the moves to get one square to another and forming patterns. And I surprised myself. I managed to master it in like a week. And yeah, I can easily solve a Rubik's Cube in under two minutes. My record is under a minute, which sounds wow. sounds super impressive. But if you watch the documentary, you'll realize that 10 seconds is slow. You move. blink already. It's like three seconds. Yeah. <laughs> you seriously watch the documentary. They move at the speed of light. Crazy. But that's really something, yeah, which I really enjoyed exploring. And which really, again, you know, I was a beginner and I explored it. And it just blew my mind. I'm like, wow, I never knew that you could solve a Rubik's Cube in under a minute. Like someone like me, who's not like doing it 10 times a day. Marcus, if you had your Rubik's Cube in front of you, we would ask you to <laughs> do it right in front here to, to show us. Exactly. Yeah. But we won't put you on the spot. Otherwise, we might get into trouble. No, I'm kidding. We love that fun fact you gave about trying out a Rubik's Cube for the first time ever in in 2020 and then diving deep into understanding the formula behind it and even going the extent of solving it under a minute. So on that note, we want to ask if you have any other important advice or should we say parting words that you would like to leave our listeners with? I I would say that the most important thing is Adopting the right mindset, which we already talked about, overcoming the fear, it's very difficult to do. But I would say that 
everyone's in control of your own life. We're all in control of our own lives. And one question that I like to ask people is, look at what you've been doing in the past week, in the past month, in the past year. Look at those things and think about if you kept doing that for the next three years, three years from now, would you be closer to the person you want to be? Would you be closer to where you want to be in your life? Or would you be further away from it? And after you've thought about that, the challenge then is, what are you going to do about it? And having thought about it and identified it and realized whether it's going to bring you closer or further from your goals, whatever you then decide not to change, you're choosing. Wow. It's like a mic drop moment. It's a great exercise. Time to do some stock take even in our personal lives uh, for for Janice and I as well. Thank you so much, Marcus. If you've stuck around to the end of this episode, we want to say thank you for exploring with us. And if you don't already, please follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and review, and most importantly, share this episode with your friends. We'd love to hear from you. So you can also connect with us on Instagram using the Instagram handle Explore This Podcast. A-C-T-S-P-L-O-R-E This Podcast. New episodes for Explore This drops every Monday at 8pm. See you then! Thank you.